and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. If you would like to have any questions, comments, or concerns answered by me, you can either call uh, call the listener hotline 303-832-0217, or you can use any of the contact links there in the description of this program. Well, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas is now over, but I think it's always a good example of where vehicle technology stands. And while it's impossible to say what the world of commuting would be like if the coronavirus pandemic had never happened, the world of mobility and transportation and location technology seems to have a pretty bright future based on what I saw at CES. I read an article in the Tom Tom blog asking this question. What should we expect from the next 12 months of mobility technology? So I wanted to know the answer uh, of that question. So I invited Drew Meehan, TomTom's principal user experience designer, with a focus on user interface design strategy and the implementation of in-dash navigation products to be here on the show. It's quite the business card. Drew, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. Now, when I say world-famous... I mean world famous. I mean, I'm speaking to you from Amsterdam. That's right. That's right. You are. I uh, I am coming to you from Amsterdam. That's where we are headquartered at TomTom. How's life in Amsterdam right now? Uh, it's in lockdown. We're in full lockdown here. Everything is closed. Uh, can't go to a restaurant. Can't do. Can't go to work. Everything is work from home. Full lockdown. So, yeah, not not much traffic these days. There has to be an overall different feeling, though, when it comes to driving and commuting and just being overall there in uh, Amsterdam, Netherlands, in, in Europe in general, than compared to the United States. What do you notice different from uh, driving there or commuting there compared to being here in the United States? Yeah, so I, I'm American. I'm from Philly. So, uh, you know, I spent a long time there living in the Philadelphia area, commuting from the suburbs into Center City. Um the biggest difference, of course, is the bikes and the public transportation and how uh, easy it is to get around. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. I have a car. I almost never use it. Uh, I commute to work exclusively by train. Uh, there isn't even a parking lot there. If I could, uh, if I wanted to drive, um, you know, I could park in a parking garage nearby or something, maybe. But there's no reason to. The trains are frequent. They're affordable. They're easy. And quite frankly, it's easier to do that than it is to drive. And I get to read a book or listen to a podcast or, uh, you know, do some work on my way in and out of the office. Um, you know, and then I actually ride my bike to the train station from home. So the whole thing end to end, I don't need to touch my car. Sometimes I go weeks at a time without it. It's interesting that you say that because there are some cities like New York City, obviously, where a lot of people do commute because they are living in Manhattan, they don't own a car, it's easier for them to get around, just like you said. But there are other cities, like Denver for one, we do have a train system and some buses, but it's not as easy, it's more spread out. Uh, Nashville, uh, you know, St. Louis, there's, there's, there's just more space for, to, to move people. So is it different in that regard where we have in the United States these cities that are more spread out, and then the cities like Amsterdam are more compact? Yeah, I mean, definitely. The entire Netherlands uh, is probably about the same size as the greater Denver area or the greater Phoenix area, right? I mean, the entire country. And within that, you have two major cities and all of the population, um, you know, tends to be 
in dense, small towns, cities around, right? So I actually live about uh, maybe 35 miles from Amsterdam itself. I live in another city of about 100,000 people. Um, you know, so the fact is, even though I'm 35 miles from Amsterdam, I live in a city that I can do everything that has all of the services. I don't live in a suburb where everything is spread around. It doesn't really exist here in that way. The, the whole environment, the whole urban environment is really kind of reversed. Most people live in cities and, and otherwise you essentially go almost to a pure rural kind of environment. But even there, it's small towns uh, with, you know, maybe some farms and things, but farms tend to be dense uh, or, or sort of condensed into small areas where everybody lives together. There's a church, there's shops, there's the things that you need to do. And then the, the farm fields kind of go out from there. They almost radiate out from a central little, you know, town center. And I think that creates a very different dynamic when you're talking about transportation, when you talk about mobility, because, you know, yeah, that, that farmer, of course, is going to need a, you know, his truck to be able to do things on the farm. He's going to need to be able to drive places and, and pick things up. But once he's sort of done the work day, he can jump on the bike and go into town and he can go have a drink or have dinner or go to the shops or whatever it is that he has to do. He's probably going to do that on the bike. Um, you know, so even when you live in a sort of small rural town here, it's still that kind of reverse situation where everything is kind of close together, even in a place where things are far apart. The next town might be far away, but the stuff you need tends to still be nearby. I'm speaking with Drew Meehan, Tom Tom's principal user experience designer with a focus on user interface design strategies. Uh, we're talking about uh, living and, and commuting in Europe. We'll be talking about some other stuff in just a second. There, there is that pan, panacea for a lot of people that I, I talk to here around Denver that they want this to be a commuting paradise similar to that where they have the downtown area closed off to basically all all but pedestrians uh scooters bicycles that sort of thing is that a possibility here in the united states or is it just our 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 geog geography and, and and the way we have built cities won't allow for us to have a european style commute uh, you know a, a commuter experience like you know get it here yeah so i think i i would say there's to me there's kind of two parts of that one is that um you know the the way urban planning or the lack of urban planning maybe in the u.s went from maybe the 50s to the 80s created a lot of places where it's not ideal and it's going to be you're going to have to reverse a trend it's not you can't just keep going the same direction and expect that that's going to get better at the same time what uh, not many people actually know is that the Netherlands had the same thing in the 50s to 70s. So after the war, um, bicycles were replaced by cars and cars took over all of these small downtown areas and, and highways were built around. Um, and it wasn't until the mid 1970s, actually, that uh, people started to revolt against the car invading their cities. And it was actually uh, pedestrian deaths and, and mostly uh, children on bikes who were getting hit by cars uh, too frequently for, for the Dutch people. And, and there was literally a sort of populist revolt against the car. And it created what we have now. It was not, it's not natural. It's not automatic. And I think, you know, when you look at Paris and what's happened during the pandemic, 
you have a very similar situation where Paris for the past, I lived in Paris 20 years ago, uh, and it was not a place for cyclists. Uh, you know, yeah, you could walk around and yes, there's great uh, metro system and, you know, buses and, and trains and things to get you around. But riding a bike was a death wish 20 years ago in Paris. And now in just two years, they have literally transformed that city into a cyclist paradise. They always had big boulevards and things, but they didn't have dedicated space. It requires a desire to change to that structure. And if people really want Denver or, or areas around Denver, my, my sister lives in Fort Collins and, you know, that is a great cycling town, right? You can do that. Um, you know, you're, you're still going to need a car to get between urban centers. You still need a car to get between these dense areas. But I think that actually uh, with a little bit of will, you, you, it's more easy to do than, than you might expect. It, that, that transformation is very doable if people really want it. But I, and I think that's a good point right there, because you say if people really want to, and I don't think the people in the United States, especially out here in the West, where you are free and easy, don't really want to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I think I think it's comfortable being in your car. Right. And, and yeah. people are comfortable with the way things are and they're comfortable with the way things have been. And they're comfortable with, you know, uh, uh, the big house and the big yard and, and the things that come with the suburban lifestyle that is also, you know, that's. That's the good side. And, and then it's not until they're frustrated, stuck in traffic that they think, uh, you know, this was maybe not the best idea, but, but they think that maybe just a bigger road is going to help. But actually, it's been proven, you know, bigger roads make it worse. Bigger roads invite more cars. You need to actually start thinking about a smaller road, constraining that, fewer parking spaces, uh, more bike lanes, better buses. It's all part of a cycle that you really need to, to want to make happen. If you want it to make it happen, it can happen. I think it's really interesting to hear that dynamic that changed between uh, what they're doing there compared to what we're doing here. And, you know, it seems like the overwhelming news in vehicle technology is really based around electric vehicles. It's based around autonomous vehicles. And we'll get back to the autonomy stuff in just a second. But one thing I noticed in newer cars is the large iPad type displays in the middle console. I think there is a, a one car, I think it's a Mercedes, that actually has one that's built that goes all the way across the dash where your speedometer is and then is inter, in, inter, integrated all the way in the center console. Why the push for these type of displays? So uh, there's really kind of two main reasons, I would say. Um, one, uh, for, for many manufacturers, and the, the ones that sort of look like an iPad stuck to your, stuck to your, uh, your dashboard, one of the main reasons is actually cost. As, as much as it doesn't seem like it, uh, it actually costs a lot less to put a big touchscreen in a car than to make all of the knobs and uh, dials and switches that used to be in a car. They were one of the hugest uh, investments that, that auto companies had to make. And it, it was a constant problem for them, renewing uh, fresh design. They were always fighting against the manufacturing of these small parts that cost them a lot. They had suppliers around the world that needed to make them to extremely high tolerances. They need to be able to withstand heat and cold and abuse and all of the other things. And a touchscreen solves all of that uh, more efficiently than all of these other things. But the second part of that is that Ironically, as much as uh, actually as from a user experience perspective, I 
prefer knobs and switches for a lot of things. I think heating and air conditioning, for example, is something I would rather have heat, uh, knobs and switches for. Um, but actually, ironically, consumers have an expectation that a screen is a more luxurious thing. They see a, a toaster and they see an iPhone and they associate the iPhone with luxury or with a more expensive thing. And so really, uh, the car companies are just doing smart business, which is giving consumers what they want, but actually saving money while they're doing it. So it creates an environment where it sort of perpetuates, right? And people are frustrated with their touchscreens, but yet they're really asking for touchscreens, you know? And, and so you have a bit of a, of a vicious cycle, maybe. I think we might see some knobs and switches come back in the next few years. I'm kind of hoping. I, I, I'm seeing some, some glimmers of hope from car companies. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really why we got there. And, and it also makes it easier to, let's say, accommodate a wide range of makes and models uh, within, the same brand, uh, within the same company. You know, a lot of these companies now, uh, Stellantis, uh, w w a company that, that TomTom has our navigation systems in Stellantis cars, um, that is Fiat and Alfa Romeo and Dodge and Chrysler and Jeep. And, you know, you, there, there's 10 more brands, right, in Europe and around the world. And for them, it's a lot easier to work with uh, a screen or a set of screens than it is to work with every individual dashboard and every individual layout. If you think about how many makes and models are under that Stellantis umbrella, it's hugely complex. And it has always been complex, but it's now more than ever because there are more models than ever and it's really proliferated. It's really gotten uh, just huge as far as a number of vehicles involved. And being able to use uh, software and screens streamlines for them that ability to customize things, to, to have different trim levels maybe, right? You might have uh, uh, something that's kind of basic and you can, you can strip out the, the navigation system in that rental car version and you don't even notice it on a software one, but you know, you used to get into the software, you used to get into a car, you'd get into that, that Jeep at the, at the rental car desk and you'd hit the navigation button and it would say you had to upgrade to get navigation or something like that, right? They don't do that anymore because it's just not there and you just can't find it, but it doesn't feel missing in the same way. So, you know, that kind of ability to really flex with what you offer across a huge range of cars is, uh, is also another real reason why I think car companies are a little bit hesitant to, to move too far back from screens. It actually works out quite well for them in the end. I'm speaking with Drew Meehan, TomTom's principal user experience designer. It, it seems like what the car companies are doing, obviously saving money because they just have that one screen instead of having to have separate knobs and dials and switches uh, in every single different car, because you want to have an upgraded experience from your Oldsmobile to your Buick to your Cadillac, right? Uh, but they also, it seems like they want to make it more like your phone, because everybody is used to switching and dialing with your phone and going through your apps, and it seems like it's a lot easier to create a different app to control your heating and cooling than it is to figure out which kind of better knob to, to put into the car. Yeah, I think user expectations is one of the things that we work towards um, in, in user experience. When you're designing for in a car, one of the things that you want to do is actually reduce the, the friction or the learning curve as much as possible, right? If somebody gets into a car that they're unfamiliar with, you don't want them to have to search to find things. And as 
you know, screens have become ubiquitous in other places between your TV or your computer or your phone or your tablet. Um, those, uh, those sort of uh, references that you have, those expectations mean that uh, even if maybe you don't know where something is, you know where to look for it maybe more easily. You know, sometimes that doesn't always work well. Sometimes it gets buried. Sometimes it goes to the wrong place because they're trying to trying a little bit too hard or there are too many apps or that kind of thing. But uh, overall, what we're trying to do is create as seamless an experience as possible for somebody who gets into that car, whether it's the first time or the hundredth or the thousandth time. And uh, that comfort with a phone and and also the fact that a lot of people have, you know, used their phone as a device, maybe if they before they had a screen, they were using a phone mounted on their dashboard and they're they're comfortable with that. They're familiar with that. So it's something that they're it's an easy transition and an easy transition is something we're always trying to do because we're trying to keep your eyes on the road. Right. We're trying to keep your eyes focused on the driving. That's the important part of what you're doing in the car, despite the fact that there's this big screen that looks like a tablet next to you. Then, then why don't we move more towards those heads-up displays where, where they project that that stuff ahead of your windshield or on your windshield so you're always looking forward instead of having to look down and being distracted by something that seems to be almost more distracting than what your phone would be. Yeah, we at TomTom actually are working really hard to make it less distracting than what your phone would be. I mean, we work really hard to make it a different experience than the phone so that it's not more distracting. But uh, we are also working a lot with uh, with augmented reality heads up displays. Uh, that is something that we are doing that that car companies are bringing in. There are limitations to it. There are problems with it. Um, one is it's expensive. Uh, but another one is that it's quite variable in different light conditions. For example, uh, you would know in, in Denver, snow is actually a big problem for heads up displays, uh, you know, fog and snow and things that create brightness or glare uh, also mean that all of a sudden perhaps your your speed goes away or makes is really hard to see and if you're relying on that for your next turn or for uh, you know making sure that you're not speeding then it can become a distraction itself so I think there's still some technical or technological hurdles that prevent that from being really mainstream right now but I do think we'll see more of it and I think we'll see uh, more, better implementations of uh, heads-up displays that have some really interesting uh, augmented reality and and sort of additional information that that really do keep your eyes on the road and and just looking ahead and focusing on what is important I remember a time, and it wasn't too long ago, where voice activation was a pretty big thing where you could just speak, you know, hey, Siri, I, you know, do this for me, right? And and cars were trying to do the same thing. So where is that in the vehicle technology space? Can I still talk to my car and tell it to do whatever I want it to do? Yeah. And in, and in fact, uh, they're better than ever. Um, you know, I think a lot of people tried it 10 years ago and gave up because they were terrible at the time. Uh, now, we have voice uh, technology and voice recognition that is as good or even the same as, uh, you know, uh, Amazon Alexa or Google Home or, you know, that type of device or Siri. Um, you know, our one of our products has Amazon Alexa sort of built right in, right? But you can also do other voices. 
and the voice recognition quality is miles ahead of what uh, even just a few years ago were possible. And, um, you know, and a lot of, uh, of car companies are actually doing a great job these days with that. They put a lot of attention to it. Uh, you know, the big screens are, are, are something that draws attention. And so people tend to touch first and think later a little bit. And what we're actually trying to do is get people to remember that voice is there. Use voice more to interact with you uh, in the first person, right? Ask you a question, recommend something, suggest something, uh, rather than sort of having people always reaching to the screen and then maybe saying, oh, you know, actually, this would have been better if you were doing this with voice, right? We, we don't even allow a keyboard on the screen most of the time. Uh, you know, we, we say, if you want to type in a search while you're driving, you have to do it by voice. And these days, you can absolutely do that safely and easily um, with no problem. It seems that these screens, and, and it's a good space for you to be in at TomTom, are, are used for navigation purposes because people have now forgotten how to get from anywhere to anywhere. You know what? I don't think I'd be able to call my daughters on their phone because I don't know their phone number. The only phone number I still remember is the phone number I, when I was growing up, <laughs> when I was eight, you know, that and, and my wife's phone number. That's about it. Same thing, I think, with driving. A lot of people just don't know. They they just are now relying on their GPS. So it seems like the navigation system is going to be even more important in that car and on that screen than ever before. Yeah, I mean, the navigation is a, a really big part. And we're we're always working to improve the navigation system to make it easier, to make it better, to make it uh, something that actually, you know, the audio prompts is something that we're working a lot on, giving people the right uh audio prompt at the right time, that you hear the turn, not after you've missed it, uh, you know, that it's the right time, that you understand which road you're supposed to do, you know, you come up to a junction and there's four different roads, you know exactly which lane you need to be in, you know, we're working hard on that type of thing. Um, but actually what's interesting, we do a lot of user research and in the US, there are actually still a really high number of people who do not use their GPS nearly as much as you'd think. Um, they don't use navigation. They have their map up so that they can see traffic conditions, uh, but they don't actually want to hear the turn-by-turn -turn directions. They actually just want to drive uh, you know, using the map as a, as a reference, as a sort of permanent reference for traffic. So, you know, hopefully they won't be putting you out of business too soon, but, um, <laughs> you know, but, but that's actually something we're now designing for because we've heard this, uh, you know, that people want to be able to essentially know what's coming without having to hear, uh, what's coming around. So we have, uh, a technology called vehicle horizons that projects out a couple miles ahead of you, uh, your most probable path that you're going to drive. And it will tell you if there is traffic in a mile and a half, even if you didn't have uh, your navigation set, we can still figure out where you're most likely going to head and say, hey, you know, just so you know, there's a backup or there's an accident on the route that you are taking. Uh, just be aware of it. Even if you didn't have navigation set that you can then turn off or you could then uh, maybe do a search if you need to find a detour or something that you could say, well, now I do need, uh, I'm going to turn off this road and now I need to figure out where I'm going. And then you can fall back onto the, the turn by turn. I'm speaking with Drew Meehan, the TomTom's principal user experience designer. You know, you mentioned about uh, what I do and, and I, whenever I'm reporting on traffic with my traffic maps, and I believe we use TomTom -tom data in, in our stuff. 
But what frustrates me more than anything, I will see an incident, I will see traffic backing up on a camera, but there's a lag between the registration of the data where it's coming in from sidefire radar or from cell phone data or whatever that gets into the system that then is distributed back out to whether it's my traffic maps or the maps that would be in a navigation system to tell you, hey, you need to get off here. I mean, three or four or five minutes of a delay in that traffic flow data is is critical for a lot of routing, uh, at least for what I do and, and for what people do uh, in their cars. So is there a way, is it going to be the 5G technology that solves that problem? But how, how do you get around that problem? Um, yeah, I don't think 5G is is uh, the biggest problem. Uh, one of the one of the shortcomings, and I hate to always say it, but is actually uh, users. <laughs> the drivers themselves will often ignore uh, traffic data. They don't believe that it is as accurate as it is. Um, our TomTom data is refreshed every thirty seconds, and it is it uses it looks at so cars that have TomTom systems installed in them. Um, anonymously are are basically showing us where they are around the world. We don't know who you are, but we can see that there's a car driving along. If you stop suddenly, we see that instantly. And within 30 seconds, that is essentially available in our maps. Now, it takes a few minutes to see that that's an actual jam, that it wasn't one person who stopped, that it's maybe all of the cars that have stopped but we have attempted in the past, a uh, bit of a funny anecdote, we attempted to um, represent the speed of individual lanes, which we can do accurately because our, our, our traffic data is incredibly reliable. Um, and that we showed it to drivers and they didn't believe that it was accurate. And so they stayed in the lane they were in rather than getting in the one that was, had better flow. So even though we could see better flow, they wouldn't use it because they didn't believe that the data was as accurate as it is. So it's a little bit, you know, there's there's a back and forth there. And some of that is simply uh, instinct or or driver behavior. You know, there people are used to driving a certain way, a certain lane, a certain exit. They get into a pattern, especially commuters have patterns that are very hard to break. Our user research shows that, uh, you know, Patterns are very hard to break. People will take the same route, even if it's slower than a route that we know is faster uh, for their commute because they like that road better, or maybe it goes by the Starbucks that they like, or some other reason that we can't maybe see. Um, and and I think the same happens a little bit with traffic as well, in that you know that that three minute delay uh, between you know really everything coming to a standstill and you you seeing it full fledged in your traffic data. Um, in that time, uh, that will have shown up in the traffic data in a lot of people's cars through TomTom Tom or other uh, traffic systems. Um, but but people tend to think, oh, well, you know, I, I, yeah, it's showing red, it's showing there's an accident, but maybe it's not because I do this every day. And, and so people will drive through it, right? And so, and, and so that's something that uh, honestly, we can't really do too much about at that stage. We need to, we, we will do as much as we can. And we're looking at ways to show it to people earlier, give them a good suggestion or give them an audio prompt. If maybe they didn't have the, uh, the navigation system running their turn by turn directions, um, that they hear, oh, you know, there's an accident in a mile and a half and, you know, traffic's at a standstill. Well, maybe if they hear that, that mile and a half comes up really quickly when you're driving 75. Uh, you know, so maybe they'll take that next exit instead of going all the way up to it or something like that. 
Um, and, you know, we're hoping that we can sort of help encourage that good behavior around traffic and around uh, taking routes that are better for everyone, right? Because it's not just about, we don't, we also, you know, we don't just root everybody off the same way and say, everybody get off here or create a traffic jam on a side road. We, you know, our, our systems, our algorithms are actually optimized to, to sort of distribute traffic even to make sure that we're trying to get people around that and, and unblock as quickly as possible. That's interesting uh, concept there. And because I was thinking about my wife, if she was in a car that was giving her a voice prompt that there was a traffic jam up ahead. And let's say as part of that prompt, it says you have a traffic jam ahead. It's going to take you 10 minutes to get through there. Or you could take this route that will save you five minutes. I, In my heart, my wife is going to say, I'll just stick with the highway because it's easier. It's what I know. I don't want to get off. I feel like there's something bad over there. I know what I have here. And this is more comfortable for me, even though it costs me a few extra minutes. That's right. And I, and I think... You know, that's sometimes, uh, you know, as a user experience designer, um, you know, you have to accept the the frustrations of of the way people really behave. The real world is messy and people make decisions for lots of reasons that may be the best, uh, you know, decision for her to make it. If it, there are a lot of people who are not comfortable getting off that road or who don't know the side roads or are not comfortable with the the directions that may come or or you know maybe there's just something that they think is going to be you know 10 minutes there versus uh saving five minutes to get off and take some crazy side route that you don't quite know maybe that is the best decision but it will mean that there's a traffic jam right it means that 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 jam will back up more than maybe if you took a, a suggested route or an alternative or or some kind of reaction but I think that's also okay. That's that's part of the real world that we live in, and we we can't sort of design for for all optimal situations. There's also the reality of where we are, and that's also okay. But maybe that's also to that point that you were talking about, where you have an algorithm that will distribute hopefully some vehicles one way, some other vehicles another way, and maybe hers is one that you just say, all right, she's going to stay in that traffic jam. I can divert somebody else over to this way. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, when I think about the sort of in-car experience, the holy grail is really personalization. Um, you know, understanding that specific driver's behavior is something that, uh, unlocks a lot of opportunities, um, you know, and ultimately, uh, you know, when you're talking about autonomous cars, self-driving cars, well, they'll do that kind of distribution automatically, right? The, the cars will most likely communicate with one another and they'll listen to that system, right? They won't make that overriding uh, decision to, to sort of just stay on the road and sit in traffic. They'll say, well, no, I see that there's a, a route that's five minutes shorter, so I'm going to take that. And the next car We'll know that the car in front took that route and it won't do that same thing, right? So it will sort of automatically distribute. I think in the short term, understanding who uses the system in a certain way and, and giving them the information that maybe fits their driving patterns best is already maybe a massive improvement. Maybe you get a suggestion to drive off, uh, you know, take a, a side route because you know all the roads in the Denver area. You're fine getting off a little bit early and, and taking the side route if you think it's going to save you seven minutes. Maybe she's not. 
And if we can know that uh, because of the driving patterns that she's done before, our system can sort of learn that, then that would already be a, a huge benefit and has some, some real advantages. Uh, but then there's also privacy issues and things that come in there. And, and how comfortable are you with uh, your, your navigation system knowing you that well or knowing what kind of decisions you make? And you know, we, we, don't like, we don't take privacy lightly. Privacy is important. We don't ever want to use that kind of data um, in any kind of negative way, but there are a lot of benefits to it as well. And so that it, it becomes kind of a big data conversation. I would get off the highway, even if it saved me seven seconds, let alone seven minutes. But that, <laughs> but for me, it's a challenge to try to see if I can beat, if I can, if I'm smarter than, <laughs> than that traffic jam, but you know, that, that, that's, that's me being me. Um, <laughs> when we talk about autonomous vehicles, uh, there, there are a lot of different parts about autonomy, uh, especially in the way the vehicles will be working. Uh, you obviously need technology in the vehicle. To, you need the radars and you need the LIDARs and you need all that stuff. But you also need infrastructure. You need decent roads and you need good lane markers and you need signs You know that, that the vehicle can read. What do you think is more important, the infrastructure or the vehicle technology? Well, there is one more piece of the puzzle. And, and of course, coming from TomTom, I have to say this, which is the maps. Um, we are essentially, you know, we are effectively mapping the world in 3D, right? And we provide that to car manufacturers as uh, a, a reference for that LIDAR and that radar and uh, the infrastructure that's there. So yeah, infrastructure is always gonna make it easier. Uh, here in the Netherlands, we have great infrastructure. We have great lines, roads always get, you know, fresh signs and fresh stripes and all of the things that you need to, in order for an autonomous vehicle to work effectively. But what we also have are vehicles that are driving around the world, mapping the world with LIDAR uh, in 3D, that we can essentially create corridors that are safe, where the cars will know where they can go safely because that has been mapped. And then they only need to react to the circumstances that are real. The, the, you know, the technology, the, the radar and the LIDAR becomes a detector of a person or a car around you and doesn't need to worry so much about that infrastructure anymore because that infrastructure is already in the system. It's already something that, uh, you know, it's baked in. Uh, that car wouldn't get on the road without those maps that already know where it's going and sort of know what that road's supposed to look like. So really it's only looking for differences. Um, and at that stage, you know, there are obviously places you have mountain roads and you have rural roads and you have places where that's uh, always going to be a bigger challenge, just mapping all of those places and, and understanding what the edge of the road is. You know, I mean, we can all think of a road where you're not quite sure where the road ends and where the, the you know, the grass or the dirt or the, the side of the road begins or, you know, and those kinds of things are going to be a challenge for a human driver, much less a, a computer driver. Um, so what we're doing is, you know, trying to make that as, as simple for the car as possible. Um, and it also takes some of the pressure off the infrastructure, but the infrastructure is always going to make it better, easier, um, higher quality drive, right? The, the more consistent the infrastructure is, the more the car can rely on that map to infrastructure sort of reference the, the better, the smoother, the easier self-driving is going to go. 
It reminds me of the early days of Waze when it was still uh, a little no, unknown app for a lot of people. They actually had little dots all over the map, and you were supposed to confirm with Waze that that road actually exists because I don't think they actually purchased because they this was well before Google bought them that they didn't really have maps and they were using letting their users confirm that there was a road there and then they could draw it on their maps. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, that still happens today. There are roads that, that are built. There are roads that are, are moved. There are roads that get widened every day, all the roads in the world, you know, they're constantly being updated and we have teams working all the time to update all of our maps and all of our road, all of the infrastructure that exists uh, within the sort of digital world that exists. Um, you know, and, and, and and I feel quite lucky, actually, because I have access to those maps. I can see them. I can even affect them. I can change them. Right. I can go into our maps. I could say, hey, you know what? That road's that road's wrong that they made. They changed that. That's that's wider now. There's a left turn later or something like that. Um, you know, and, and we we are working on that. And we are also working on on making that something that is easier to do so that the, the maps always do reflect reality, because, quite frankly, uh, it's a huge task maintaining those maps and keeping them up to date and keeping them uh, correct and relevant for the way people are using them. Um, and I think it's, I think it's really, uh, you know, it's come a long way, but the sort of rapid progression of infrastructure means that it's always something you're chasing. You're, you're never going to catch that. It's always moving. It's always being built. There's always new things. There's always changing things. I'm speaking with Drew Meehan. He's the uh, principal user experience designer with TomTom. And we're talking about all kinds of vehicle technology that is in cars right now. And with autonomous cars, as we were just mentioning, really that user experience is going to change dramatically. Now, right now, the user experience is is let's hope our Tesla doesn't run into the back of a truck. Um, but in hopefully 25, 30, maybe 40, 50 years, when we do see, even though some people have predicted much earlier than that, I think it's going to be longer term. Um, but when we do see autonomous cars, that user experience is going to be different. You could almost have all of the windows be a screen. You could, you, you really could have the car in almost any configuration. Uh, maybe safety-wise, you're going to want to still be uh, in a seat, facing forward, buckled up, just in case you don't you don't want to hit something and, and face sideways like you're in a bus or something. Um, but that user experience really is going to change with autonomous vehicles. Yeah, of course, though, safety is less of a problem if everybody is driving an autonomous vehicle, right? Because uh, then they're not going to hit each other, perhaps. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping we see some big breakthroughs and that we get something in 15 to 20 years, but we will, we will see. Maybe we check back with each other in 15, 20 years and see who was right. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know, the main difference that I see between what we have now and what will come when we have autonomous vehicles is really a shift from uh, active in information to passive information, right? Um, and, and yeah, the, the ability to, you know, everybody always goes to, oh, you can work in your car or you can watch a movie in your car. And yeah, maybe we will do that. But I think we're, we're still going to, we're still going somewhere. You're not getting in your car for fun to just drive around, uh, and watch them Netflix, but you could still, you'd rather do that at home or, you know, in, in a comfy chair or, uh, or, or something else. So you know, I don't think it's necessarily always going to be that. I think that's a, it's a, it's a default. It's easy. It's understandable for people. But I think actually what we, 
What we may have are more interesting things. You, you might have, for example, projections of information around what's happening. Uh, uh, you know, you go to a different city and the, the windows are also screens. And on those screens, it tells you, uh, you know, points of interest, things that are interesting in the city, maybe facts, maybe information about those different places. Um, maybe on your, your daily commute, uh, as much as I hate to say it, you, you might get uh, information about shops or sales or things that you might be interested in. Oh, by the way, you know, H&M now has this uh, shirt on sale and you're driving by and you're going to see that pop up in the window. You know, uh, monetization isn't going to go away just because uh, people are in a self-driving car. Um, so it has a huge variety of possibilities, uh, though, to, to give that information provided in a way that's very different. You don't need it anymore in order to do what you're doing it becomes a passive thing. Interestingly though, we still see uh, a need to understand where you're going and what the car is doing. Uh, and that's something that's often forgotten in these models, right? People are looking at their laptop or they're lounging or they're watching a movie. But the reality is in, in what we've seen from research and sort of studies of how people behave in cars is that uh, they still want information. What street are they on? When is a turn going to happen? And, and, and that, in fact, it might even be more important because if you're drinking champagne and watching a movie or something, you're going to need to know if you're going to take a sharp turn or go over a speed bump or, uh, you know, if you're going to be in bumper to bumper traffic or whatever else might happen. So actually informing people, creating a sense of, uh, of understandings, confirming for people that, uh, you know, that when you're a passenger, you're not, uh, you're not sort of a victim, right? You're not, you're not stuck in it. Like when you're in a bus and the, you know, you ever been in a bus and it turns off the regular route and you just feel helpless, right? Like, where are we going now? And you, you don't have any idea what's going to happen next. You, you hope that it goes back by the time you get to your stop, but you have this moment of panic in, in an autonomous car. There's a risk that that happens constantly. So we need to inform people. So, so maps and navigation isn't necessarily going to go away, even if the steering wheel does, because it's just going to become something that communicates to passengers where they're going, uh, what the timing's going to be, make sure that they understand maybe what's going to happen next and prepare them also for potential eventualities like, uh, you know, bad weather is going to slow us down. And now maybe we're going to be a few minutes late and things like that, because that, that, needs to be deflected, right? You can't sort of, you're not, you can't be angry behind the wheel. You can't necessarily decide something if you don't know that it's going to happen. And so we'd need to maybe inform people. Reminds me of a, uh, in maybe a more detailed uh, way, the map that you see on an airplane when you're flying and they, they let you know where you are or on a cruise ship where you've already sailed and where the cruise ship is at that point. Same kind of idea where you could maybe scan, you have that one navigation panel, and then you could have your other one where you are watching Netflix or whatever. And maybe, you know, all that stuff it gives you your speed, what the temperature is outside. We're going to turn this way in 200 feet, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I think it will continue to play a role uh, even when cars go fully autonomous, that people are going to want to know when they're going to get there, but also what's happening along the way. And I think that, that you know, airplane analogy is, is a great one because, you know, it doesn't really matter uh, where you are, but but you're still curious. You still look at that and you still go, oh, you know, you look out the window and you say, oh, is that Greenland? Yes. Yes, it is Greenland. And, and you know, yeah. So, you know, we all we all want to know that information. And so I think it's going to be continuous if you're in a car 
and it's driving itself and you drive by or you drive through a, an unfamiliar neighborhood or a place and you see something interesting, uh, you're going to want to know where you are in reference to that. You might say, oh, look at that. You know, they finished that new building or here's that new road. You kind of go, oh, you know, where where are we going to go now? And you want to look at that map or maybe see an expanded view of that map or just be prepared for what's going to come next. All right, Drew, I'm, a, I'm an idea guy. And I'm, I'm going to present you with a $100 million idea here. And I'll, I just need 10%. Uh, QR codes on those road signs that you're driving around. So when you come up to the city of whatever, there's a big QR code. The car automatically reads it, pops up. Oh, here's a park there. This is the restaurant, the wait times at the these top restaurants that you want to go to. Uh, here's these different things that you can scroll around and go see in that, let's say, town. Or, uh, you know, it could be a QR code for all kinds of different things, but you just put them so the car can read it as you're driving along, and boom, you have that info right there. Well, I appreciate the idea. However, <laughs> I would tell you, Jason, that our maps already have a lot oh, of that on. data in there. Um, and, and so we don't even need the QR code. What oh, we thanks. need, though... <laughs> what we really need, uh, I, I mean, it's a great idea and it is actually a great way to, you know, to think about how this is going to be. I mean, I mean, it's already something that could be convenient today, right? You, you drive into a new town and it shows you where things are, um, you know, but we're also looking at that's that same personalization holy grail that I talked about, right? That understanding what you like, the kind of places you like to go means that we can maybe uh, show you recommendations. You're in a new town and here's the kind of spots that you've gone before because maybe you have your, I don't know, your, your Foursquare or something else is connected and, and that pops through the kind of places that you like. Or, you know, we know that you like a certain kind of, uh, you know, a certain kind of restaurant or coffee place and, and we can track that. We can say, hey, you know, we know that you like coffee company. And so we're going we're gonna to point you to that instead of the Starbucks down the road because we, we know that you go there at home. So you probably want to find that here too. Um, you know, and I think it's, uh, the kind of next level and next generation of navigation experience that I think will be really interesting to see where that goes, whether people really want that, whether they really interact with it, if it's in their car, whether they have that, um, or whether, you know, people will continue to pick up their phone to do that kind of thing. We, I think right now we see that there's a, a bit of a, a desire to grab a phone and think that somehow Google Maps has more information or better information than what your car maps do, when in fact, that's not really true. Uh, but there's maybe a, an interaction level, a comfort level with the phone that you have. Um, and we're actually building that now into passenger experience. I don't know if you've driven in a car that has a passenger display, um, like the new Jeep Grand Wagoneer, is that the one? Oh, I can't believe I can't remember which which model it is, but it has passenger display and has backseat displays. And, and we're actually building uh, different uh, map experiences, navigation experiences for those passengers because, well, you know, the driver we don't want uh, looking up uh, which coffee place or what are the best places to see in that town. But having that pop up on a passenger display in front of that passenger or for the backseat passengers as they look at that map is actually a really great way to explore a new place and find new things and, and see just, you know, the map data is so rich and, and so deep, um, you know, and I, and I hope we can find new ways to really get people to interact with that because I think they'll, they'll find that they can really get a lot out of it. I'm speaking with Drew Meehan, TomTom's principal user experience uh, designer and uh, 
well, and somebody who just shot my idea down and says he's going to keep it for himself, and so I'll continue to have to work for the rest of my life. Um, in, the, in the short time that we have left, I, I want to talk about some of the issues with electric vehicles. and Because electric vehicles, I, I've been driving a Chevy Volt. Not the Bolt, but the Volt, the one with the generator in the front, because I like that uh, I don't have any range anxiety because I can keep filling up with gas forever and drive it as an electric car so I get the benefits of an electric car where it's lower maintenance and all those issues, but I still can fill it up with gas and keep going forever. Um, but I think some of the biggest issues with electric cars is charging them quickly because I'm used to, and my wife is used to, oh, I'm out of gas. She stops at the station five minutes later. She's got a full tank. She can go for another week without even thinking about it. You can't do that in an electric car. You can do that maybe in a hydrogen electric car, but not the battery plug-in electric cars right now. Is there any technology that you see coming up that could help speed that along so we can have longer trips uh, and and fuel up faster in our battery powered cars yeah so so uh, again uh, being a designer i'm going to come at you with a sort of multi-part answer to that um and and ev is near and dear to my heart i work on our electric vehicle strategy and and things at tom tom so it's definitely something that i spend a lot of time on trying to figure out how we can make this better um, one of the things that we, you know, we are now looking at, I think as the infrastructure grows, there is a little bit of a shift that we're seeing anyway, from range anxiety to what we call charging anxiety. So range anxiety is how far you can go on that, that charge, right? And that, that used to be a problem because there were cars that could only go 70 miles or something and, and you can't even get to work and back. Yeah, mine has a range at, at top optimal temperatures and everything at 40 miles. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it, it, it wasn't reasonably equivalent to, uh, to a regular combustion engine car. However, these days you're, you're looking at 200, 300, and there are cars with, you know, now that are coming out with 400, 500, 600 mile ranges. As we get to let's say the, the 400 mile range, you start to get to a point where range anxiety just isn't really that big of a deal anymore. And at that stage, what we, what we really see is charging anxiety. Charging anxiety is very acute in the North American market, especially because charging stations are few and far between. And the ones that are there don't always work, right? And we know that this is a problem. It's, it's recorded. We have good data on it. We can see when they're working, when they're not working. You can see that there are, you know, it's just not reliable yet. Um, here in the Netherlands, it's much less of a problem. It still exists, but it's much less of a problem because it is so dense. And we have, uh, I think I heard this number, 40% of all of the charging stations in all of Europe are in the Netherlands. So we're one of the smallest countries and we have the densest infrastructure. So, uh, you know, it's really quite easy here to, to get around and to, to find that. So it's not a big issue, but it is very real, this charging anxiety for people in North America, in Germany, in other big countries where there might be big gaps between. So there's two ways that we're approaching it. One is uh, what I call opportunity charging. So opportunity charging is making sure people are remembering to, to top up those batteries in a way that you would have never been able to do with a, a regular engine car, right? Your, your regular engine, you, you top it up only when it's empty because you don't really need to. But with uh, opportunity charging, what we're talking about is you stop at the supermarket or you go to the mall and there's a charging station there. And what you do is you plug it in while you're doing your grocery shopping and you get 
maybe another 100 miles out of that. That 100 miles means that your range anxiety it almost never has to be there because you can kind of float along at a, a sort of permanent 200 mile range, right? And it's only then when you go on long trips, you're going, you know, you're going to, uh, you, you know, you're going to another major city and you really then are pushing the range and then you have to find that charging station and make sure it works. Well, in that circumstance, what we're looking at is improving the way we recommend charging stations so that you are getting the best possible set of charging stations that take you the least amount of time, give you the fastest charge, but also get you the furthest so that you're not stopping every 20 miles and plugging in and charging up for five minutes. Fast charging uh, or ultra fast or ultra rapid uh, is becoming a, a real thing now. Um, that's also going to help. You have 150 kilowatt chargers, you have 350 kilowatt chargers, and cars like the Porsche Taycan or even the Hyundai Ioniq uh, 5 that can, can charge at these speeds where you're talking about topping up in 10 minutes, you know, from 30 to 70%, which is more than enough to get you another couple hundred miles. 10 minutes is not that bad. If we can also recommend, uh, you know, a charging station that has a coffee place next to it, you're golden, right? The time that it took you to stop get the kids, you know, take all the kids to the bathroom at the rest stop or get a coffee, your car's charged up and ready to go another 250, 300 miles. I think in, you know, we're in a transition period right now. We're in a tough moment where the infrastructure hasn't quite caught up. Uh, you know, I think that the, the new infrastructure bill will maybe help that. Hopefully we'll get some new infrastructure coming into the U.S., um, you know, and, and I think what we are doing here in the Netherlands, we're, we're, we're living a little bit in the future, right? This is what infrastructure can look like. And we can see how little uh, problem there is when you really kind of get it right and when it's distributed and when high speed chargers are available. Because really what you're talking about is a, is a, a whole set change in people's thinking where I'm going to charge up my phone every so often like people are used to doing. But you have to be able to have then to do that a hundred different charging stations at basically every parking space at the Walmart or Target or grocery store or wherever. So you're going to need tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of individual little chargers that people can plug into. Yeah. Well, that is, that is one way to do it. I mean, and that's, and that's actually the way it is basically here in the Netherlands that there are literally, you know, tens of thousands of uh, small chargers people can charge overnight or people can charge in a parking garages. You know, every parking garage is built with 10, 20, 30 plug-in spots so that as you're, as you're parked, you're also charging, right? It, it's absolutely common here. Uh, those types of things will massively help. Uh, for those long-range drives, then you're talking high-speed chargers. They don't need to be tens of thousands because that it's more like a gas station. It's more like what you're familiar with you stop there. It takes 10 minutes. You, you charge up, you get your, you know, you get your candy bar and your coffee and you come back and then it's ready to get you to the next stop. So it's a mix, really. It's a, it's a combination of those things. And I think what we are seeing is that new infrastructure is going in, in a lot of places in the U S where they are, they are uh, sort of grouped with things like shopping center developments and, and things that are, that are, you know, where there are big parking lots and, and companies are realizing it's a great opportunity to put a charging station there. And so they do put a big row of chargers in. 
so that you can do that. I think in the next few years, we're going to see that a lot more and that people will really, it does require a new mental model, right? You need to change your thinking in order to, to make that work. But uh, it's not so hard. And that, that phone battery is exactly the thing, right? If you start realizing that your car and your phone uh, use the same kind of setup and yeah, you plug it in overnight, you use it. If you see that it's 30%, you, you plug it in for 10, 15 minutes into a fast charger, and then you, you go on the rest of the day, you know that you're going to make it through the evening at the, at the bar or whatever, and you'll be able to come home, right? We all have gotten familiar with that, uh, but yet when we get in our car, we still expect that same behavior that we're used to from an internal combustion engine. That's going to need a shift, but I think people get on it pretty quickly when they realize uh, you know, that it's, it's actually not so unfamiliar to them. Yeah. And one of the problems now, especially as I'm seeing these pickup trucks, I saw one advertised yesterday, this electric Ford. Well, the thing about pickup trucks is they're really used for hauling things, whether in the bed or you're hauling a boat or a trailer or whatever. That puts an extreme amount of, of load uh, on the battery power. Let's say you're here in Colorado and you're towing your uh, camper or your four wheelers, whatever your snowmobiles up into the mountains, which is going to be a huge load because you're going uphill most of the time. You are towing something. It's cold weather, so you're losing twenty to thirty percent of your battery power anyway. So how do you get over those challenges, especially with how people like to use their pickup trucks? Yeah, I mean, I think I think pickup trucks is a very difficult, uh, you know, and and towing and and loads are definitely something. I think you know what's interesting actually is my understanding of the problem with towing is that the aerodynamic problems are actually bigger than the load problems that come with towing. Um, you know that that in fact uh, the aerodynamic, uh, so the type of thing you're towing might actually affect the battery more than the fact that you're towing it at all. So whether it's a boat or a camper or uh, just some kind of uh, trailer, they might all weigh the same, but they'll have widely varying ranges based on that. And that's something that, you know, I think only with time and testing, are we going to get accurate enough sort of range estimates and recommendations that come with that, right? We're working on automatic charging suggestions so that you'll know where you can go and where will be the best places to charge in the sort of direction you're headed. But yeah, you're driving from Denver to Steamboat and you have a boat on the trailer and you know you have to figure out where you're going to stop. Right now, it, it's definitely a challenge. It's a real challenge. And people who are doing that, the early adopters who have their, their Ford F-150 Lightnings and the boat on the back, they're kind of testing it for the rest of us right now. I don't think there's a really solid, great answer. But with time we will learn from the experience and there will be this sort of interactive uh, loop of feedback that will eventually make it. I think that, that even that will become uh, quite normal and quite easy. And of course, as infrastructure grows, uh, all of the, all of the problems slowly melt away. Right. Speaking with Drew Meehan, Tom Tom's principal user experience designer. Last question as we're wrapping up here, give us your prediction of maybe the biggest change in vehicle technology that we would be talking about a year from now in January, 2023? A year from now, January, 2023, I don't think we're gonna have massive shifts in anything that we are doing. But I think the biggest thing will be that everything that you see in January, 2023 will be electric. And that 
everybody will be putting so much energy into electric vehicles that it will almost feel like there aren't any internal combustion engine cars on the market anymore because everyone is going to be bombarded by advertising and new models that are electric. And I think uh, you know the change that goes with that is going to be this shift in mentality about how you drive. So the biggest thing is not going to come in the car itself. It's going to come with how people use their cars. And I think that is really going to be the biggest shift that we see in the next year and probably even the next five years uh, as electric vehicles take over as the primary uh, sort of push by car manufacturers. Uh, I lied. That was the second to last question. <laughs> uh, is there room for hydrogen or even diesel for the the folks that are, because I was just thinking about the pickup stuff. I mean, we have those Ram 2500s, you know, that are really workhorses for uh, folks that are, are doing a lot of construction work. Is, is there room for still diesel powered trucks and for maybe new hydrogen vehicles? Yeah. I mean, I think when you talk about big trucks, uh, even talking about like tractor trailers and things, I think hydrogen is potentially an option there. Um, you know, it, I, I think it depends who you listen to, whether hydrogen is a viable thing. I, I quite like what I hear about it and how that can work, but I think there's inevitable sort of weight penalties that come with hydrogen uh, for the foreseeable future. I think that that electric or hydrogen electric vehicles will be a thing. I think that hybrid, so diesel electric and, and internal combustion electric hybrids will continue to be very useful in bigger vehicles that do need to tow, that do need more range than what you're going to be able to get from a pure electric vehicle. Um, you know, and I think that that's something that it allows you to use that car, that vehicle in very much the same way you're familiar with, but move it forward and get much better efficiency and really using electric for what it's best at, right? Use it for its torque, use it for the regeneration, the braking regeneration. Uh, you know, those are things that actually in like a heavy vehicle in a, in a big truck are, are massively helpful, right? You want to be able to tow more, nothing better than electric, right? But you want to be able to go more than 10 miles uh, with your electric vehicle towing uh, 20,000 pounds. Yeah, then maybe you need something else uh, alongside it to make sure that you could just keep going. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation, Drew. Um, I really appreciate your time. It um, learned a whole lot, and uh, it's it's really interesting to to learn about all the cool things that are happening with vehicles, especially inside them, and and as we were talking about all the uh, all the uh, additional stuff as well. So, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on, Jason. I really appreciate it. It was fun. It's so interesting to hear what it's like commuting in different parts of the world. And I think it's fascinating. I really like driving in other parts of the world because everybody has their own style. I would really like to talk to somebody in Southeast Asia and hear their stories about commuting because there are some areas that have basically no rules, no lane lines, no uh, it's just no rhyme or reason of how they get around, but they do. Uh, and I don't know how they like pedestrians trying to cross a road in some of these these towns. It's it's. The videos make it look like it's nearly impossible. I'd also like to hear how it's driving in Australia right now. I, I think they've been in those severe lockdowns, so it's probably easy to get around, but you probably also have to be freaked out that you're going to be pulled over and, and checked out at any moment that you can't really have the freedom to go everywhere you want to because of their extreme lockdowns there in Australia. Uh, you know, and I've also had a bunch of uh, downloads from Australia recently, as well as from Ireland and Germany. So 
any of you listeners want to uh, drop me a line, I, I sure would appreciate it. Uh, all the description uh, or all the uh, contact links are in the description of the show. Uh, as, as I say, it is world famous, and we <laughs> downloads from all over the world. So I appreciate all of you from around the globe. So guten tag to all of the Germans that are listening here. Uh, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.